This is the Bigger Pockets Podcast Show 485. The direction of your life bends, the arc of your life bends in the direction of your habits. And so, you know, sure, there are other things in life that influence outcomes, luck or randomness or misfortune. But by definition, those things are not under your control. And the only reasonable, rational approach is to focus on the stuff that's in your control. And your habits and your choices are. You're listening to Bigger Pockets Radio, simplifying real estate for investors large and small. If you're here looking to learn about real estate investing without all the hype, you're in the right place. Stay tuned and be sure to join the millions of others who have benefited from BiggerPockets.com, your home for real estate investing online. What's going on, everyone? It's Brandon Turner, host of the Bigger Pockets podcast here, actually at Bigger Pockets headquarters, which is weird because I'm never here in Denver, but here at BP headquarters uh, with digitally my buddy David Green, who coincidentally is actually in Maui. What's up, buddy? Yeah, that's funny. I'm actually in Maui at one of the condos that I bought, and you left. So yeah, I got this a uh, big, huge, like thirty some million dollar uh, multifamily deal that we're buying here out in Vail County or Vail Vail Valley is what they call it. It's like out near the ski resorts, like Vail. It's a uh, it's crazy. I went and looked at it. It's awesome. So yeah, that's uh, that's what's going on with me. You got some condos, all that going good. You can get them rented out soon. Yeah, I'm meeting with some people today to go over putting a team together who's going to kind of do that Airbnb thing. I'm still looking okay, to cool. find other people that have done this before that I can kind of consult with and possibly hire. But it looks like uh, for the rest of the year, I'm going to kind of be moving in the direction of buying more short-term rentals and putting a team in place to try to manage those and trying to figure that game out. Cool, man. I love it. I love it. Taking action. Well, today's show is with an author you've probably heard of before, James Clear. Uh, he's a I mean, his book, Atomic Habits, has sold well over 4 million copies now. It's been on the top of every bookseller's list for since it came out. It's always like listed as like one of the top books in the world. Uh, it's it's hugely influential to a lot of people. A lot of people have mentioned on the podcast before. So we are super stoked to bring you an interview with him today. Where we talk all about habit creation, how to build new habits that are good, how to destroy bad ones, what is a good habit versus a bad habit. We talk a lot about how habits get placed in the business. And I, I give some examples in my own business, how I've used habits in my team to buy a lot of real estate. And David, I know you do the same. We talk about how habits affect, I mean, really every area of your life. So this is probably one of the most important episodes you could ever listen to of any podcast. I'm not just saying that because I'm, you know, it's the bigger pockets show like it literally this concept is life-changing so i'm excited for you to hear it but first let's get to today's quick tip listen on the show we talk about habits and one of the examples i give is about the habit of analyzing deals uh and so if you have not like mastered that art of being able to run the numbers and feel comfortable making an offer because you know exactly how much that property is worth and how much you should pay for it if you have not done that uh, we offer free training every single week at Bigger Pockets on how to run the numbers on deals. So we do these webinars every week. And when you attend, we do a real life deal analysis every single time because we know that's important. So attend any webinar that we do. Just, just go to biggerpockets.com forward slash, I think it's forward slash webinars, plural. We'll get you there. And uh, you can attend the next webinar, learn how to analyze deals and get better and better at that. And if you're a existing pro member, by the way, you don't even have to attend live. You can watch replays uh, anytime you want to in the Bigger Pockets Pro replay room. So that's your quick tip is build the habit of analyzing deals. It'll change your real estate life forever. That's our quick tip. Passive income without the property headache, it's possible. 
There's a way to invest passively in real estate and get monthly income without any tenants, maintenance, or property management. The Wealthy have been doing this for years, and if you're an accredited or high net worth investor, you too can collect cash flow without the headaches that come from owning rentals. How? By investing in a private real estate fund with PPR Capital Management. PPR's co-founder, Dave Van Horn, wrote the book on real estate note investing for BP. But he's not just investing in notes. Dave and his team also have an extensive background in commercial real estate. And with PPR Capital Management, they're strategically investing in both notes and commercial real estate nationwide. With over half a billion dollars in assets under management, PPR has provided individuals with a steady source of truly passive income since 2007 without ever missing a payment. Check them out at investwithppr.com. Again, if you're looking to get monthly passive income from an experienced team with a strong track record, go to investwithppr.com today. This show is sponsored by Airbnb. Did you know that I turned one of my first homes into an Airbnb? It's true. And it even helped me get the extra income I needed to launch my real estate career. So if you want to try your hand at making even more income with your property, Airbnb is the place to be. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com host. We know, and you all know, why it's super important that good tenant screening is absolutely critical to your management process. Luckily, RentReady, the comprehensive property management software, has a new feature that makes tenant screening a breeze. In addition to TransUnion certified tenant screening, RentReady now offers proof of income verification. RentReady's automatic tenant proof of income verification ensures an in-depth check of each applicant's financial stability. With Plaid certified tenant income and assets reports, you can see a potential tenant's income summary and total earnings by month. All tenant screening and verification is paid by the tenant and done through the desktop and mobile app. It's time to say goodbye to gut check tenant screening and feel confident renting out your property with Rent Ready. And as a matter of fact, all Bigger Pockets pros have Rent Ready included in your pro membership. If you're not a pro, Rent Ready is offering you 50% off of their annual plan. New customers visit rentready.com and use code BP2024. That's R E N T R E D I.com using code BP2024. That's BP, like Bigger Pockets, in the year 2024 to save 50% off of one year of Rent Ready. All right. With that said, I think we're ready to get into today's episode. Uh, David, anything you want to say before we jump in with James? I really enjoyed our conversation with James. I think people are going to get a lot out of it, especially if you are an investor who's trying to figure out why you're not gaining traction. Why is this so hard to get going or why does this just feel scary all the time? Today's episode has a lot for you specifically. Enjoy the episode. And if you like it, don't forget to leave a rating and review in iTunes or wherever you're listening to the podcast at. Let the world know it's really good. Maybe share it with somebody you think would be powerful. This is not a real estate show. We barely talk real estate today. So anybody that's in your world that could benefit from better habits would probably like this show. So do us a favor, share it on your Instagram, on your Facebook, whatever you can do, clips of it, social media, take a picture of it. Help us spread the word about the power of developing atomic habits. Let's get to the interview with James Clear. All right, James, welcome to the Bigger Pockets podcast, man. It's awesome to have you here. Hey, great to talk to you. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so let's dive into your story a little bit before we get into the the, the topic I want to cover today, which is you know obviously habits. But uh, before before being the guy that sold millions of this book and uh, you kind of a household name in the personal development world, what were you doing? Like, what was your kind of background? Well, uh, I was always into science and I liked school and sports, and so um, I played baseball the way through college, and then um, I studied the sciences while I was there, technically my degrees in biomechanics, but it was mostly like chemistry and physics classes and stuff. Um, and then after that, I went to, uh, get my MBA, um, which is kind of where I started to get exposed to entrepreneurship. And I saw my job, my 
on-campus job was to work in the Center for Entrepreneurship. And so I saw a bunch of people starting companies and rolling stuff out. And I was like, maybe I should try that after I get done. And so when I graduated, I gave it a shot and uh, had no idea what I was doing. So the first two years, I just kind of stumbled around and tried a bunch of ideas. Nothing really stuck. And eventually, I realized that one of the reasons I was struggling is because I didn't have an audience. I would launch these products and didn't have anybody to tell. And so I started writing to build my business. I started writing to build an email list and, uh, you know, have a, a company, hopefully that would succeed. And this weird thing happened along the way, which is, it turns out I liked writing and I was good at building an email list. And so I like kind of stumbled into these skills that I didn't re- you know, seek out in the beginning. And I wrote about all kinds of stuff early on, wrote about health and fitness and weight training and medicine. Uh, and I also wrote about habits and strategy and decision-making and some of the stuff that I write about now. And, uh, it turns out the other stuff was fine, but what people really wanted to hear from me on was about habits and strategy and decision-making. And the more I wrote about that stuff, uh, the bigger the audience got. And I was like, well, that's where the Venn diagram overlap is of like what I like and I'm interested in and what the audience likes. So I'll do more of that. And eventually after a couple of years that led to signing the book deal for atomic habits and then ultimately writing it and so on. That's awesome, man. Well, a couple of years ago I put together a, uh, uh, like a, we have a journal. I mean, there's lots of journals out there, but we have a journal at Bigger Pockets called the Intention Journal. And I did a ton of research on, you know, like on habits and goal setting and all that stuff. And I just kept coming across your blog, like over and over and over and over. I feel like half of my research just came from the research you did. Uh, so you saved me a lot of time. So thank you for that. Uh, but why, why did habits or why do habits in this concept fascinate you? Like, why is it worth writing a book on? Why is it so important that we, we, learn about habits. I mean, first of all, your brain is building habits, whether you're thinking about it or not, you know, like it's just a, it's a process that your brain goes through to try to automate whatever it can. And so depending on the research study you look at somewhere between 40 to 50% of your behaviors are automatic and habitual each day. So usually it's small things like tying your shoes or brushing your teeth or unplugging the toaster after each use, like stuff like that. But I think actually the true impact of your habits is even larger because a lot of the automatic decisions that you make end up setting the context for the conscious decisions you make afterward. So like if you're standing in line at a store and you automatically check your phone, you just kind of habitually pull it out of your pocket and look at it. Well, the next 10 minutes might be carefully thinking, oh, I need to respond to this email or I, you know, I'm reading an article or browsing social media, but everything you're doing there was already the context for that was set by the habit of pulling your phone out of your pocket. So you know, the true influence to them is probably even larger than 40 or 50%. I mean, they, they shape all kinds of stuff throughout our day. And so that's one reason to learn about it. You're already going to be building them. Well, might as well, if you're going to be doing this all the time anyway, understand how to be the architect of your habits rather than the victim of them. Because a lot of people feel like their habits are happening to them. But then the second thing is, you know, if you step back and think about the outcomes in your life, the direction of your life bends, the arc of your life bends in the direction of your habits. And so, you know, sure, there are other things in life that influence outcomes, luck or randomness or misfortune. But by definition, those things are not under your control. And the only reasonable, rational approach is to focus on the stuff that's in your control and your habits and your choices are. And they also strongly influence those outcomes. And so, you know, in many areas of life, your results are a lagging measure of your habits. Like your health and fitness is a lagging measure of your eating and training habits. Your Mm. bank account is a lagging measure of your financial habits. 
your knowledge is a lagging measure of your reading and learning habits. Even like the clutter in your bedroom is a lagging measure of your cleaning habits. And so there's kind of this like great irony of life, which is we also badly want better results. You know, we also badly want to be fit or to have more money or to have peace of mind, but the results are not actually the thing that needs to change. It's like fix the habits and the results will fix themselves, fix the inputs and the outputs will fix themselves. And so because habits exert such a strong influence on your results in all areas of life, I think they're a really critical thing to talk about and to understand. And uh, that was one of the things that got me interested in them to begin with. That's cool, man. Yeah. I wrote down a, a quote here from the book. It says, the more you repeat a behavior, the more you reinforce the identity associated with that behavior. Uh, can you talk about like, what do you mean by identity and how does that play into what you just talked about? So far, we've only discussed habits as like the method to achieving a particular result. And it's true that habits can help you do those things. They can help you be more productive or get fit or, you know, reduce stress or whatever. And that's great that they can get external results. But I think the real reason, the true reason that habits matter is that they can reshape your sense of self. They can give you a new story about who you are, the identity that you assign to yourself. And so you know, in a sense, true behavior change is really identity change. It's really changing the story about who you are and why you do the things you do. And that's why I'll say some stuff like, you know, the real goal is not to run a marathon. The goal is to become a runner. You know, the goal is not to read a book. The goal is to become a reader. The goal is not to do a silent meditation retreat. It's to become a meditator. And in those cases, I'm using, you know, actual labels like reader and runner and meditator. But you can do it with characteristics too. You know, you can be like, I'm the kind of person who shows up on time or I'm the type of person who's reliable or I finish what I start or, you know, I'm a good teammate. And all of these labels or characteristics, they're aspects of your identity, some more than others. But whether you believe in that being part of who you are is heavily influenced by the habits that you perform. And so in a sense, your habits are how you embody a particular identity. Like every day that you make your bed, you embody the identity of someone who is clean and organized. And the more that you do that, the more you believe in that story. So every action you take is like a vote for the type of person you wish to become. And, you know, doing one push up, no, it do- doesn't radically transform your body, but it does cast a vote for I'm the type of person who doesn't miss workouts. And writing one sentence, no, it may not finish the novel, but it does cast a vote for I'm a writer. And the more that you cast those votes, the more you build up evidence of being that kind of person, the more you give yourself a reason to believe in that kind of story. And I think that's probably one of the things that's a little bit different about my approach or philosophy than what you often hear. You'll often hear something like fake it till you make it. And I don't necessarily have anything wrong with fake it till you make it. It's encouraging you to believe something positive about yourself. But it's encouraging you to believe something positive without having evidence for it. And we have a word for beliefs that don't have evidence. We call that delusion, right? Like at some point, your brain doesn't like this mismatch between what you're saying you are and what you're actually doing. And so behavior and beliefs are a two-way street. You know, like what you believe about yourself will influence the way you act. And the actions you take will influence the story that you tell yourself about who you are. But my argument is let's let the behavior lead the way. Let's start with one push up or sending one email or writing one sentence or meditating for one minute. And it doesn't sound like much, but in that moment, you cannot deny that you were that kind of person. And the more you build up those votes, the more you build up this body of evidence, 
the stronger and more solidly you believe in that identity. When you mention habits, I know I, and I'm thinking most of our listeners may be in the same boat. There's this negative visceral response. I don't like the thought of having to build a habit. Habit immediately sounds like discipline, routine, bad. There's like very rarely do I hear I need a good habit and get excited about it. It's usually get rid of a bad habit. And this has come up in my life so often as of late. I'm constantly thinking about this. But I started to think about the word habit and just exchange it for programming. Like what you're really describing is every action you take affects the code that your life works off of. And that code can be working for you in making your goals easier or against you in making them difficult. And when I started thinking about it as programming, it became a whole lot easier to embrace that this is really what life is about. If you want a better life, that's how you get there in in many ways. And there's a a lot more we're going to talk about, I'm sure. But do you think, James, that I'm on the right path with my understanding of it? Yeah, there's something central about the meaning that you assign to events in your life and the story that you tell about what's going on. And that programming, as you phrased it, or that script that you're running on is at the core of every habit. You know, I, I break a habit into four different stages. You've got this cue, craving, response, and reward. And the craving part is the programming part that you're talking about. It's a core piece of what drives a habit. And it's largely about the meaning that you assign to different things. So for example, um, if you walk into the kitchen, you see a plate of cookies. So that's a visual cue. You see the cookie on the counter. But the next thing that happens is your brain kind of automatically assigns a meaning to it. It predicts, oh, those cookies will be sweet, sugary, tasty, enjoyable. And it's actually that story in your mind about what a cookie is and the fact that it's tasty that motivates you to pick it up and take a bite and so on. And, you know, so if you could somehow change the story, like imagine if every time you you know saw a cookie, somebody punched you in the face. Well, now all of a sudden, you know, you would have a negative connotation, a negative association with that thing. And um, that, of course, is an extreme example, something that's not going to work in real life. But the point that I'm getting at is almost all of your behaviors, we think life is reactive. We think, oh, something happens to us and then I respond. Somebody says something in conversation and then I feel a certain way. But in fact, almost all of life is predictive. Your brain is almost continually going through life and predicting. What should I say in the next sentence? What does that mean when I look across the kitchen and I see the cookies? How, what are those? You know, do they have a favorable association or an unfavorable one? And it's all of these predictions that your brain is constantly making that shape the actions that you take and help determine the, you know, the next step that happens. So um, yes, I think the short answer is the, the programming that's going on or the associations that you've learned throughout your life are a core piece of why you fall into certain habits and avoid other ones. And you mentioned that results are a lagging indicator of the choices you're making or your habits. That is that in referring to the four disciplines of execution concept? I, I know 4DX, like I know the term, but I've never read the book, so I'm not sure exactly what you're referring it to. It seems to be the same concept, yeah. It's like Yeah, so just yeah. to catch everybody up, the idea would be if you look at the scale when you're trying to, if your goal is to lose weight, if you look at the scale to see what you weigh, that is a lagging indicator. It is a revelation of things you've already done. Leading indicators would be the opposite of that, which would be measuring how many times you go to the gym or measuring your caloric intake. So there's definitely some similarity there. Um, I, I, like I said, I'm not totally familiar with how they phrase it, but it sounds, sounds like the same idea. In terms of habits, the important thing that I like to distinguish is, and I think this actually helps us define what is a good habit and what is a bad habit. Because 
a lot of the time people will say something like, well, if it's a bad habit, why do I keep doing it? Or they just feel that way. You know, it's like, well, obviously, you know, why do I keep falling into these things that aren't good for me? But the truth is all behaviors serve you in some way, you know? So like, um, smoking a cigarette is like the classic example of a bad habit. But if you smoke outside with a friend, you know, as a part of a work break, well, then you get some socialization out of it and you get friendship out of it. Or if you smoke at the end of a work day, maybe you get some stress relief out of it. And so there, there are things that uh, those behaviors do that serve you, even if ultimately they don't. And so the way that I like to distinguish good habit versus bad habit, and this ties directly to your point about leading versus lagging indicators, you can imagine pretty much all behaviors is producing multiple outcomes across time. So broadly speaking, we have an immediate outcome and we have an ultimate outcome. And with bad habits, the immediate outcome is often pretty favorable. You know, like you smoke a cigarette and you get to socialize right away, or you eat a donut and it's sweet and sugary and tasty right now. And it's only the ultimate outcome, you know, if you keep eating donuts for two years or if you keep smoking, that is unfavorable. And with good habits, it's often the reverse. Like the immediate outcome of going to the gym, certainly early on, is your muscles are sore, you sweat, it takes a lot of energy and effort, you don't have a whole lot to show for it, your body looks the same in the mirror at the end of the night. It's only the ultimate outcome two or five years later where you're like, oh, now I have the change that I was working toward. And so a lot of the game or a lot of the challenge of getting good habits to stick and getting bad habits to break is finding ways to pull the consequences of your bad habits into the immediate moment. So you feel Mm -hmm. a little bit of that pain right now and finding ways to pull the rewards of your good habits into the immediate moment. So it feels good and you have a reason to enjoy it and so on. And ultimately, once a good habit is really established and built, and it kind of ties into that identity concept we were talking about before you're getting some of the reward just as soon as you do it. You know, like if you view yourself as I'm the type of person who doesn't miss workouts, well, right when you're in the middle of doing a set of squats, you're kind of reinforcing that desired identity. And so you already are getting some benefit from doing it, even if you got to wait for your body to change. Now, of course, it takes a while for you to actually truly believe that. But um, but that's kind of ultimately what we're working toward. So that brings me to the next point I wanted to ask you is one of the the experts in habits. One of the problems that I found in business is it's very difficult for me to distance myself from the actions I take in business that give me a direct dopamine hit. And it sounds very familiar to what or similar to what you're saying when you say, hey, smoking a cigarette actually does accomplish its purpose. Drinking alcohol does accomplish a goal. Part of what you have to do is understand where do you want to go to know if this is a good habit or a bad habit. But I found that if I go take a listing, I have a, a real estate team. And they signed that listing agreement. I get a shot of dopamine. I was clearly successful. I did what I wanted to do. It feels good. I get an immediate gratification. Then I have to go do all the work associated with that. And the next time a listing comes, I have to go do it again. If I train somebody else how to do it, I relieve myself of the problems that come with taking a listing, but I also lose the dopamine hit that I got when I did a good job. I could have five people out there taking five times as many listings and it is better for my business um, intrinsically to be that way. But for David Green, it does not feel as good. I'm missing that jolt I was getting. And that is what seems like it always, that's why I get sucked back into doing things that I know that I shouldn't be doing. Can you comment on if I'm the only person in the world that has this problem or if other people (laughs) go through this too? Yeah, well, I mean, I'm sure you're not. I think strategy is always one level up from whatever you're talking about. So uh, right now we're talking about the mechanics of, you know, listings and so on. So like what's one level up from that? 
And I would say, you know, there's a bigger conversation that we need to have about what am I optimizing for? And you need to have a good answer to that question so that you can make choices like that. Because if you're, if you don't know what you're optimizing for, you almost always just end up doing what makes you feel good in the moment. Because why, you know, if I don't know roughly what to choose between these two choices, well, might as well choose the one that makes me feel good. And a lot of people find themselves doing that all the time. You know, they, they aren't sure what they're really working toward or what they're optimizing for. And so it becomes hard to delay gratification because it's, it's more difficult for you to envision what exactly is important to you. And the truth is, um, from a business standpoint, yeah, it probably is better to have a team of listing agents, you know, doing that. And if that's what you're optimizing for, then it's easier to make that choice. But if actually you enjoy that part of the process, then uh, maybe it does make sense for you to do it. And I don't know what the right answer is for you. uh, And it's going to be different for each person. But like, if I think about my business, technically I could achieve a lot more scale if I hired a bunch of writers to do the writing for me. And then I play the role of editor or, um, you know, I just kind of oversaw the whole operation. We could be putting out more books. Um, You know, some authors, some real high level authors do this. Like James Patterson has like a team of people who write for him and he sort of just does the outlines and that's why he's able to come out with a book every three months or six months. Um, I'm not interested in that. That's not what I want to optimize for. There's nothing necessarily wrong with it for somebody else, but uh, because I want to optimize for, I don't know, I just feel like I should be the one producing the work and I should be the one writing all the words, then that's going to change, you know, the shape of the business. And so I guess um, there's sort of two answers. You know, the first answer is what you're discussing about having immediate dopamine hits versus delaying gratification. Clearly, there's an important life lesson there. And the more that something serves you in the moment, probably the more you should question whether it's the right long-term behavior, because usually delaying gratification uh, is the better choice. But then there's also a separate discussion about what am I optimizing for and what actually does this look like for me rather than just chasing status or chasing success or doing it because that's how everybody else does it. I want want to ask kind of a cliche question, but it's one that comes up a lot. Is there a number of days, a number of uh, uh, repetitions that cements a habit in, right? We've all heard, what is it, 20 something days. And then I think the one thing talks about 66 days and they've got these numbers. But what do you see as the truth about developing a habit? How long does that actually take? Yeah, the um, there are multiple numbers floating around. 21 and 30 days are very common things that you'll hear. Those kind of been, I don't know, yeah. historically the, you know, the myths or the, you know, statements people make. 66 days is a common one right now. There was one study that showed that on average, it took about 66 days to build a habit. But even within that study, the range was quite wide. So as soon as you start to unpack this, it makes, it immediately makes sense that the answer is it depends because some habits are harder than others. So what the study found was that, you know, something really simple, like drinking a glass of water at lunch might only take you a few weeks. Something more difficult, like going for a run after work each day might take seven or eight or nine months. But then even within that, this isn't part of the study. This is just me talking now. Um, You know, imagine two people trying to build the habit of going for a run after work each day. Well, if one person lives with a bunch of roommates who are all athletes, then that's like much more within the social norm. If another person goes home and nobody in the um, apartment exercises, then now you're going against the grain of the group. And so the same habit can be easier or harder depending on the context as well. The punchline to all of this, I think, is that the true answer, the honest answer to how long does it take to build a habit is forever because if you stop doing it, it's no longer a habit. And what I'm getting at with that is 
habits are not a finish line to be crossed, right? They're this lifestyle to be lived. And as soon as you start to appreciate that and accept that, you look for changes that are small and non-threatening and sustainable and that you can integrate into your daily routine. And that you start to realize like, oh, what I'm actually trying to do here is make a lifestyle change, not be healthy for 30 days and then I don't have to worry about it anymore. Um, yeah. And I think that the, you know, saying that it only takes 21 days or 30 days or whatever, it just sort of implies that uh, even though that's not the reality. Yeah, I did that. You know, that 75 hard program, I think Andy Frisella's program where like, yeah, for 75 days, you work out twice a day, gallon of water, read a, 10 pages in the book. So I did this, right? And I went all 75 days, worked out twice a day for 75 days and had the gallon of water and everything else. Day 76, I didn't work out. Day 77, didn't work out. I drank about a cup of water for like those. And since like, I have not worked out every day since, I mean, I work out maybe three times a week now, two or three times a week, but I did that before too. Like it didn't matter if I did it 70, I did it 150 times, right? It didn't matter. It just doesn't matter. Uh, because, and I, the way I look at that is David's laughing at me. Why would you do pain. that? That's <laughs> like, I went to Bud's camp and I graduated and then they said, Hey, do you ready to be a seal? And you're like, no, I just stopped. <laughs> I just stopped. Uh, and, but what's funny, cause it was a, it was a finished line. I mean, it was a goal. I'm not, I regret doing it. It was great. I, you know, got some good fitness and whatever, but the, the 150 time repetition wasn't enough to make it a habit because in my head, it was a finish line I had to get to. It was an, it wasn't an identity shift of I work out twice a day every day. That's who I am. Kind of like I'm not eating sugar for the next month versus I don't eat sugar, right? Those are identity, like just revisiting that concept. Those are identity phrases, not, uh, quick actions. I, I don't necessarily have anything wrong with challenges. Like if it's something that motivates you and gets you going, gets you to take action, then that's fine. Um, but you often see the behavior that you just described, which is what yeah. I would call like people fall into this yo-yo cycle where they do something to train for the the half marathon or to complete the 75 hard or whatever it is. And then they find that they oscillate back to their old style immediately after. And then it takes two or three months. And they're like, man, I haven't done anything. Now I need to you know, pick up something else and do that. And so they just this back and forth rather than a consistent ride. Um, however, it's kind of, there's like this lesson about life where it's useful to have, uh, have a plan or to have made a plan, even if everything doesn't go to plan, it's still helpful to yeah. have done that. And, um, I think that's also true for frameworks or sometimes even challenges, it's useful to know these things or to try them or to have a framework to follow, even if you don't end up sticking to it, because in order for anybody to get results, you have to have a willingness to experiment. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it doesn't matter if it's the best book you've ever read in the world or the most motivating documentary you've ever seen. The plan can be perfect, but if you don't have a willingness to take action and to experiment, you're never going to figure out how to apply it to your life. And so, you know, that's kind of one of the funny things about people like, oh, well, but will this work for me? And the point is, actually, nobody knows if it will or not. You're the only one who can figure that out if you're willing to experiment. And so I think you actually need a combination. You need uh, a really good plan, which, you know, like, obviously, I'm biased, but I hope that Atomic Habits, in the case of habits, like, lays that out and gives you a good framework. And this is a great starting place. But then you also need to combine that with a willingness to self-experiment and a willingness to uh, try things in your own life. And then it's the combination of the two that ends up helping you figure out something that actually works for you. And so I, you know, I don't recommend challenges personally, but I don't necessarily have anything wrong with them because I do think they get people to start experimenting and start trying. And then maybe you find a couple things that work for you 
And eventually you come up with your own system that fits yeah. your specific life rather than worrying about following some, you know, perfectly outlined blueprint. Yeah, that's really good. Yeah. I'm like during that time where like, I, I definitely drink more water now than I did beforehand. So it like, it like raised my thermostat maybe a little bit, even if I didn't get the, the full on and I've done other challenges over the years and yeah, some of them have helped and been awesome and some haven't, um, you know, we do something every, every quarter, roughly at bigger pockets, we call it the 90 day challenge. And all I basically tell people is, can you analyze a deal every day for 90 days? And mm-hmm. the only thing I really want them to do is just build up that skill. I don't care if they actually analyze it for the rest of their life. I just want them to get good at analyzing numbers. Cause in real estate, everything's yep. about the math. So you know what's funny is, um, in most areas of life, the, like the person who learns the most in any classroom is the teacher not the students, mm, yeah. because you got to know the material really well yep. in order to teach it. Yep. And so in many areas, we often tell ourselves something like, I'm not ready to get started yet. I need to learn more. But the truth is the best way to learn is by taking action. And so, you know, exercises like that, where you analyze deals for 90 days. Yeah. Now you're actually learning because you're actually doing the work. And I think almost anybody, regardless of field who says something like that, like, you know, what I used in, what I learned in college was okay, but like, you know, it doesn't help me that much. I don't think about back to my like biology class or something. It's, you know, you're, it's actually doing the work that teaches you the skills that you need to know. And so the, the faster that you can get to doing the real thing, usually the faster the learning comes. I would say that's, that stands very true in our world. If I think about the people who have the most success investing in real estate, there are people who like bought a house, lived in it, decided they were going to move, didn't want to sell it, had to rent it out, and just did the stuff that happened. And the people who have to go buy that house and put 20% down can't stop asking questions to need to feel prepared. What do I do if this happens? What do I do if that happens? But when you just fall into it, that's, that's kind of how I got into it. Those problems don't seem very big. So Brandon's become very good at this. Yeah, you just need a strong bias toward action. And if you have that bias to, you know, you trust that you'll figure it out along the way rather than feeling like you need to figure it all out before you can take a step, it just, they're, they lead to wildly different outcomes. Yeah, I think you're right. And what we end up telling newbies and what I tell myself a lot of the time in anything is if that person can do it, I can do it. That's sort of how I get over that initial, I don't know if I'm ready for this is I find somebody who's clearly unprofessional or not (laughs) good at what they're doing. And I see them having success. And then I just remind myself, I don't need to have all the answers because they figured it out. I'm sure I can too. I guess what I'm getting at is a lot of what it takes to be successful is getting over the own sabotage that your brain comes up with that stops you from, from just taking action. That's all that really comes down to. For sure. People are their own bottleneck, usually long before the circumstances are the actual bottleneck. Um, they're so worried about the circumstances holding them back that they never get to the point where it actually is the reason for, um, you know, for them not being able to move forward. There's this weird tension that you have to have. Cause like I simultaneously, what I also believe is, you know, it is worth it to do the reading or to do the research, to be well-prepared. Preparation is very important in life, but I think the key distinguishing thing is at some point planning becomes its own form of procrastination. So the question is, you know, is continuing to research and prepare and ask questions and, you know, try to increase my knowledge. Is that enhancing the actions that I'm taking or is it substituting for the actions that I could be taking? Because when planning and preparation starts to substitute for taking action, it's no longer useful. But if it's an accelerating and enhancing the things that you're doing, then that's great. Um, but a lot of people use it as a crutch rather than, you know, running the risk of potentially failing. Mm. 
Yeah, it's really good, man. This show is sponsored by Airbnb. Did you know that a long time ago, before I ever started my real estate business, I turned one of my first primary residences into an Airbnb? And that's the extra income that I needed from Airbnb that gave me the confidence to go out and work for myself and eventually quit my nine to five job. And now I have dozens of Airbnbs all over the country. I've even partnered up with the old David Green on a recent property in Scottsdale to take our portfolio to the next level. And of course, we host it on Airbnb. But you don't need to be a full-time real estate investor to start on Airbnb. As a matter of fact, I was self-managing 10 properties while working my 9-to-5 job, so I know anybody can do it. Think about it this way. You're looking for extra income and going on a vacation. Wouldn't it be great to rent out your space and let your property pay for itself while you're gone? I did this one time. I pitched my wife and my roommate because we were house hacking on the idea of renting out our home, and it paid for all of our expenses on a trip to Mexico City. So go and give it a try. It might just change your life just like it did mine. And I really do mean that. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. We know and you all know why it's super important that good tenant screening is absolutely critical to your management process. Luckily, RentReady, the comprehensive property management software, has a new feature that makes tenant screening a breeze. In addition to TransUnion certified tenant screening, RentReady now offers proof of income verification. RentReady's automatic tenant proof of income verification ensures an in-depth check of each applicant's financial stability. With Plaid certified tenant income and assets reports, you can see a potential tenant's income summary and total earnings by month. All tenant screening and verification is paid by the tenant and done through the desktop and mobile app. It's time to say goodbye to gut check tenant screening and feel confident renting out your property with Rent Ready. And as a matter of fact, all Bigger Pockets pros have Rent Ready included in your pro membership. If you're not a pro, Rent Ready is offering you 50% off of their annual plan. New customers visit rentready.com and use code BP2024. That's R E N T R E D I.com using code BP2024. That's BP, like Bigger Pockets, in the year 2024 to save 50% off of one year of Rent Ready. You're trying to close on your next rental, so why is your insurance company dragging its feet? With long lead times and never-ending paper forms, it's no wonder it takes forever to finally get a policy. Modern investors deserve better. They deserve Steadily.com. At Steadily.com, you'll get fast, affordable landlord insurance available online 24-7 in just a few clicks. You can even get next-day coverage, which takes just minutes, by the way, to obtain. And you can do it all from your phone. Steadily was founded by landlords who created insurance products tailored to the unique needs of this industry. It's their sole focus, and that's why landlords nationwide consistently rate them 4.8 out of 5 stars. So whether you've got a single family, short-term, or multifamily portfolio, Steadily.com can secure the best coverage at the best price to protect your properties. Discover how Steadily can save you both time and money on your rental property insurance. Visit Steadily.com for a commitment-free quote tailored to your needs today. Take a second and imagine this. Immediate cash flow, above average rent, built-in equity, and a foolproof exit plan. No, it's not 2012 again. This is just what it's like to invest with Integra Development Group. They've simplified the real estate investing process so everyone can invest. With their new construction single-family rent-to-own homes, you'll get aggressively priced brand new properties that have tenants in place now in one of the fastest-growing states in America, Florida. Here's how IDG's rent-to-own strategy works. You get exclusive access to inventory with aggressive pricing thanks to IDG's builder-partner relationships. Then, invest and collect immediate cash flow with tenants already in place at or very close to closing. 
With the demand for new builds, your tenants pay above market rent, so you rake in more cash flow. And you'll get built-in equity and appreciation with an already agreed-to purchase price at year three, helping the tenants become homeowners while you build wealth. That's investing simplified. So secure your next investment property today with Integra Development Group at IntegraDG.com. That's IntegraDG.com to start investing today. Well, let's talk about bad habits for a little bit. It's probably something that people uh, would love to hear about. You know, there's a lot of bad habits out there, whether it's smoking, drinking, you know, whatever, or the biggest habit of all, which is for most people, which is their phone, right? I mean, the number of times I pick up my phone every day, it's ridiculous. And I can go short sprints. I'll be like, hey, 30 days, I'm not going to use my phone. And I, I might do it. And then as soon as I'm done with that little challenge, I'm back to using my phone five hours a day, right? So what, what kind of framework have you looked at as being successful for eliminating the bad habits in our life? I know you said apply some negative consequences sooner, but what does that look like on a, on a tangible level? I generally think that the most effective place to start for breaking bad habits is one of two areas. So um, in my framework, it's either the cue or the, um, the actual action itself, the response. So you either make the cues less obvious or you make the action more difficult. So the, it looks like the following things. Um, Making it less obvious is stuff like uh, if you are online shopping too much, spend, spending too much money there, and that's a bad habit you want to break, well, unsubscribe from emails. You shouldn't be getting bombarded by Nordstrom and you know, all yeah. these other places um, if you don't want to buy those things. Uh, if you feel like you spend too much money on the latest tech gear, then don't read the latest tech review blogs or follow unboxing videos on YouTube. Um, if you're trying to follow a particular diet, don't, you know, follow a bunch of food bloggers on Instagram. Like people are constantly being triggered by the things they're trying to avoid. So reduce exposure to the queue, uh, is one way you can also do this with physical things. So like for myself, I've noticed that if I buy a six pack of beer and I put it in the fridge and it's like right in the door or right there uh, at the front where I see it as soon as I open the fridge up, I'll grab one every night and have it with dinner just cause it's there. Yep. But if I put it at the bottom of the fridge and tuck it like all the way in the back where I kind of got to bend down in order to be able to see it, sometimes it'll sit there for weeks. I won't even remember that I have it. And, um, I noticed something, a similar pattern with my phone. You mentioned checking your phone all the time. I'm the same way. If my phone's next to me, I'm like yep. everybody else. I'll check my phone every three minutes just because it's there. But I have a home office. And so I try to follow this little personal rule where I leave my phone in another room until lunch each day. And you know, it's I'm at home anyway. It's only 30 seconds away. It's just down the hallway. But I never go get it. And so I'm like, well, did I want it or not? You know, like in one sense, I wanted it because I would check it every three minutes if it was next to me. But in another sense, I never wanted it bad enough to go work 30 seconds and walk down the hall and get it. Yeah. And you'd be surprised how many bad habits fall into that kind of pattern that if you just increase the friction a little bit, the behavior sort of curtails itself. Um, and so I think that's the first place to start is with environment design. Let's remove it from the environment entirely. So don't keep junk food in the house or, you know, something like that, or let's just reduce exposure to it, uh, by reshaping the environment a little bit or unsubscribing from emails or whatever. Yeah. And, uh, just those things are a good start. Um, you know, tons of examples for social media stuff, turning off notifications or, um, when you log out of the app, just delete the app from your phone. So next time, if you want yep. to log into Instagram, you have to download it again. And, you know, just that little bit of friction of having to go to the app store and wait a minute is often enough for you to realize, I don't really care about this. I'm just checking it because I got 10 seconds free. And um, you'd be surprised how many behaviors just doing that kind of stuff 
will uh, will help reduce to the desired level. I once heard Tim Ferriss say to, that he turns his phone on black and white. Uh, and so that way it's black. So he picks up the phone. It's just like this little quick trigger to go like, oh, that's right. I'm not, I don't really need my phone right now. And I've, I use that on and off, but I, I like that idea. I haven't even set up on a short code. If I click my button three times, it'll go black and white. And then it's just, it's a, it's just a little bit of a cue there. Just to remind me, Hey, don't do that. I also got myself one of those, I, you know, the Apple watches that have like the cellular. So like the idea being, I can still text, I can still call. It just adds this barrier that makes it annoying. So mm. I rarely do it. Like I, <laughs> It's just enough of a hassle that you're like, I'm not going to bother. Yeah, because yeah. I'm going to text somebody. I'm going like, to do the voice text, right? And I'm like, I'm like, hey, I'll meet you at noon. And it says like, hey, look at the moon. And I'm like, yeah, no, yeah. and I send the wrong one. In fact, it's trying to text right now just by me motioning sure. with my hand. So like, it's just enough of a hassle that I'm like, oh, I didn't really need to respond to that right now anyway. There are some really extreme examples. Like there's a product called the Kitchen Safe that is a Tupperware container and it's programmable so you can lock the top. So you know, I've talked to a variety of different people that um, wanted to curb late night snacking or something like that. So after dinner ends, the you know Doritos and the chips and everything go in the kitchen safe and they lock it and it won't open again until 7 a.m. the next day. So, you know, they're not going to eat anything before they go to bed. So there are, there are ways to use technology like that. You know, ultimately, I think those things are short term solutions, but um, but they can all be helpful in kind of, you know, getting you toward the desired outcome. Yeah, you know, there's a. I don't know where this falls in this conversation, I guess, but I'll throw out the example anyway. For years, I would drink a peppermint hot chocolate every single day from Starbucks. Every day. I loved them. I mean, every single day, seven days a week, 365, for probably like three years. And then uh, it was definitely, definitely a habit. Definitely like I needed it every day. It just was a thing. And then one day I looked at the sugar content of, of how much sugar was in there, right? And I realized there was more sugar in what I was drinking than a, a can of soda, a can of Coke. Now, I would make fun of people or laugh at like my dad who would drink a can of Coke or two every single day. And I realized I was worse than my dad in terms of my sugar consumption for the same thing that I made fun of other people. And that day was my last pepper and hot chocolate other than I get one on mm. Christmas now. I was never had any like no withdrawals or, you know, I, I mean, there was no like it. My habit changed immediately because there was like this emotional Maybe it's an identity thing, right? Maybe like yeah. something changed in me. And like, so today I would say like media changes mindset a lot, or there's other things like if, if something convinced me in my head and this wasn't really media, but it's something that had changed that I was like, ew, gross. Right. And like, it's deeper than just a, I'm not going to buy a pepper and hot chocolate today. Or I'm going to, I'm going to have strong willpower. Something else changed there that made that no longer an issue. And I, I just feel like if I could apply that to every area of my life, I could build any habit or destroy a habit. And I haven't been able to fully repeat it with almost anything, but that's one example of where I did. Yeah, that's a, I do think that's close to this kind of identity conversation we've had or the story that you tell yourself about what things yeah, mean. Like, I don't eat that much sugar. Like <laughs> that's ridiculous. It changed the meaning that you assigned to what yes. a cup of peppermint hot chocolate was. It changed yeah. how you felt about, you know, the, yeah, the prediction that you made about whether that was enjoyable or useful or, you know, favorable or not. I, um, I, that's a real life example, which I love that you have that. I've often given this hypothetical example of like, imagine you walk into your, uh, kitchen in the morning and you see a loaf of bread and you're like, Oh, I'll make some toast for breakfast. And you put it in, you make it and whatever. And you kind of do this throughout the, you know, every day. And then you go read some diet book that convinces you that like carbs are terrible and mm -hmm. grain is the devil and you should never, you know, like touch it again. And if you genuinely have that kind of mindset shift, the next morning you walk in, you see that loaf of bread and you don't think I should make toast. You think I need to throw that out. Yeah. And um, people have those types of mindset shifts or epiphanies or whatever you want to call that 
occasionally. It's rare. It's mm-hmm. hard to bank on. But you are right. Like if you could do that, if you could reassign the story in your head about what that habit means or about what that item um, signifies, then it'd be much easier to stick to a whole host of behaviors. And um, yeah. that's a very interesting example of how you were able to do it. Yeah, I went vegan for a while or at least vegetarian. And the way I did it, I just like to make it not, I watched like three documentaries on Netflix about veganism. <laughs> and like, I didn't, it didn't even care about meat for like a lot. Now, eventually I got kind of back on it. So now I'm like a little bit of meat, but like. Kind of like intentionally uh, propagandized. Exactly, exactly what that is. (laughs) I did that for my wife when we got into real estate investing. There's a book called Rich Dad, Poor Dad, right? By Robert Kiyosaki. And I really wanted her to read it because it changed my whole mindset about money and saving and kind of like what people should do, right? So she didn't want to read it. And so I traded her if she read Twilight, or if, if I read Twilight, she would read Rich Dad Poor Dad. So I read all of Twilight and uh, she read Rich Dad Poor Dad and immediately changed her mindset as well. Because like media, like the books you read, the podcasts you listen to, it changes your mindset. And -hmm. so you can kind of propagandize yourself. (laughs) Is that a word? Propagandize yourself? You know, that's actually um, pretty much every thought you have is downstream from what you consume. Yeah. And so in this case, you're talking about books or documentaries, which is obviously a crucial thing about selecting. But the real big one for all of us is social media. Yes. And people yeah. don't think about it this way, but when you choose who you follow on Twitter or Instagram or wherever, you're choosing your future thoughts. And in, we think, oh, I'm just following a celebrity or I'm following this person or whatever, mm-hmm. but you're crafting the information flows that are going to be coming to you. You're crafting yeah. the the uh, content that you're going to see day in and day out. And so you are choosing your future mood and your future emotions and your future mindset. And I think we need to think much more carefully about who we select and who we follow because it's going to influence you in a much larger way than you think. Um, that yeah, media right. changes mindset idea, I think is very powerful. I don't know. Yeah. It feels like so stupid because we feel like as humans, we should just be able to make a decision, right? Like why can't I just not eat the chips that are on the counter? Like I, I posted a thing on my Instagram, some reshared some meme the other day. It said, you'll never know how little self-control you have until you get to that Mexican restaurant with the chips and salsa. And I was like, that's totally true. I cannot not eat the chips and salsa because like I just lack the self-control. But while we can't necessarily, I mean, I can't, but while I don't change the action in the moment, like you said, you can back up a step and change the cue. I can choose not, like it's easy for me to choose to go to a Mexican restaurant or not. I'm like, no, let's go here instead. But once I'm in that moment, it doesn't work anymore. So, I mean, is is that the key to self-control is just environmental change in that? Or are some people just really good at just saying no to the chips? I think it's the key long-term. You can, you can overpower your environment for a day or a week. Like you can do, you guys have already talked about some of these challenges and stuff. You can do it for 30 days. You can not eat chips and salsa if that was like yeah. a big, important thing for you. But um, in the long run, environment overpowers your willpower. It's kind mm. of like a form of gravity. It just pulls you toward. And, you know, the, the reason I think is fairly simple. I mean, we all have busy lives. We have multiple priorities. We got kids to take care of or parents to do favors for, or, um, you know, things that are due at work or organizations we volunteer for. There's a lot of stuff competing for your time and attention. And when you don't have capacity, when you're tired, when you don't have a ton of energy, when you uh, are just pressed for time and need to make a quick choice, what do you do? You often choose the most obvious thing. You choose the the path of least resistance. And so if the chips are on the table and you're hungry after a long day at work, and you're chatting with friends, you just eat them because they're there. It's not because you are incapable of making the choice. It's just that the energy has been spent in many other areas. So um, you can't choose something. You can't order a dish if it's not on the menu. 
And mm-hmm. that idea, I think, can be applied to pretty much any environment. You know, like just shape the environment. And if, if it's not a choice there, then you don't have to worry about falling into it when you don't have energy and so on. So I feel like environment design is a very powerful way to change behavior. Um, and uh, in the long run, yeah, it probably is the secret to self-control because uh, environment tends to overpower your, your willpower and discipline. That's really good. I have an example of how that's sort of working out in my life right now. You guys want me to bear my soul in front of all 250,000 people. <laughs> <laughs> so Brandon and I recently started uh, doing jujitsu. And when I say that, I mean like once every week or two, maybe less than that, actually. It's not that often. But doing it is terrible. I'm not as good at it as I want to be. It is physically taxing and painful. It's humbling in a lot of ways. It's overall a really unpleasant experience for most of the time. But it triggers a part of me that I'm not going to quit it and I don't want to be bad at it. So what happens is I start thinking I want to be in better shape. I want to have more energy. Uh, I want to be conscious of what I'm doing. I want to have more discipline. So the choices I was having a very hard time making regarding like my diet, like I know I should not eat. If I eat a sandwich in the middle of the day, I'll get in like a, a fog and for five hours, I'll have no energy. I won't be able to think. But I always tell people for the 23 hours and 59 minutes of the day, I have amazing willpower, except for the one minute when it's actually time to make the choice of what I'm going to eat. And all of a sudden that salad that I've told myself I'm going to eat all day turns into the sandwich. And uh, knowing that I'm going to go train that day, I will not eat that sandwich because I'm thinking I'm not going to be sluggish when there's someone trying to pop my head off of my body, right? It makes it easier to make that choice. And the same thing goes with like, oh, I really should get up and exercise today, but I don't want to. When I'm training for something, when I was going into the police academy, when I was playing a sport, now that I'm doing this, I know I'm going to be going to classes. That discipline required to go exercise or eat better becomes way easier, And so it it really ties into what you're saying, James, that I put myself in a different environment and all of a sudden making better choices became a whole lot easier. Like there was some skin in the game as far as those choices I made. And I'm sort of talking out loud thinking that may be why when we say your environment will dictate how you act, that we can make a conscious choice to put ourselves in the environment and being in the environment will lead to all the results we're talking about here. I, two things that popped into my head as you were talking through that. So First is you joke about like having willpower for 23 hours and 59 minutes, but then not for that one minute when you need to choose. What you're really saying is you have willpower when you don't have to make the choice, which is actually more insightful than it might seem on the surface. Because what it's saying is if you're not surrounded by the choice, you're fine. You don't go seek it out. It's just when it's right in front of you. And that I think is one of the key points I'm trying to get at with the environment design pieces let's just remove that stuff. If you don't, if you don't face the temptation, you don't have to worry about resisting it. And so, yeah, you can choose to reshape that environment in a way that reduces the temptations that you face. You don't have to worry about that one minute because now it's just 24 hours straight where you don't face it. Yeah. If, like I was gonna say, if David like hired like, a, and cause I actually want to do this too. If I, you hired like a, a, a cook in your area, right. To make you seven lunches and they're pre-made and they're in your fridge ready to be warmed up every day. Like all of a sudden it's, it's there. You just change the environment. So you don't have to decide it's already pre-done. I mean, that's, there's that. And that actually leads into kind of the second thing I was going to say, which is, you know, that this jujitsu or whatever you're, you know, focused on is going to, is important to you. And so once you know what you're optimizing for, a lot of the other decisions that used to be challenging are no longer challenging. It's easy to say no to it. Like 
imagine how much easier it is to say no to going to happy hour for an Olympic athlete versus like the average person who's just part of the you know team at the office. Well, the athlete is like, listen, this does not help me get closer to my goal. And they know what yeah. that vision is very clearly. And so saying no to happy hour is like not even a sacrifice for them, really. It's just like, no, that doesn't make sense. Um, it's only when you don't know what you're optimizing for that it becomes difficult to delineate and to choose between these different options. And so in a sense, it's nice to have a priority to organize your life around. I'm not saying everybody needs to be as intense as an Olympic athlete, but it's just that the more clearly, you know, what you're optimizing for, the more decisions sort of naturally make themselves rather than you having to carefully choose. Yeah, it's amazing how much easier those right, quote unquote, choices become when you have the goal. I think about people that struggle with saving. My Most of my life, I was a really good saver. Spending money, I just didn't understand why people can't save money. It just didn't make any sense to me. Uh, but that's because I always wanted to invest in something. I was always saving to buy a car, saving mm-hmm. to buy a house, saving to do a thing. And I was tracking it. And I'm as we're talking, I'm realizing that's why that was so easy for me is I had a goal the whole time. For the people that are having a hard time saving, that might be exactly why it's tough is they don't have a reason. They're optimizing for immediate pleasure and improvement of their life. They're not optimizing for retirement or for 30 years from now. Or for the gratification they'll get from buying a house instead of renting one or owning an investment property or whatever it is that that goal is. Like I would think the minute that someone commits to, I'm going to buy a house in 2022 or whatever, I need X amount of money. All of a sudden saying no to that new video game or whatever it is that you like to spend money on. Just like you said, James, going to the bar, people spend 80, 100 bucks in a night just buying drinks, right? It makes no sense. And they'll go do that type of thing. I think that becomes a lot easier when there's a goal. So now I'm wondering if the people I know that seem to have the least self-discipline are the same people that have the least clearly defined goals. I don't know for sure, but I think there's probably a connection. That's cool, man. All right. Well, we got to start kind of wrapping up things. Uh, well, on the, maybe that's like last topic. I'm wondering how do you view like goal setting kind of before we move to the famous four, what do you like, do you think it's good to have like, I got my annual goal. I got my, you know, it's the new year's resolution. Where do you view that stuff? I think goals are necessary, but not sufficient for success. Instagram quote card right there. (laughs) (laughs) You know, let's take like, consider we just talking about Olympic athletes. Imagine any athlete at the Olympic games, presumably all of them have the goal of winning the gold medal, but only one does. So clearly the goal is not the difference in their performance or, If you have 100 candidates apply for a job, presumably all of them have the goal of getting the job, but only one person does. So you see this type of pattern again and again, which is in most domains in life, the winners and the losers often have the same goals. And so if they have the same goals, but different outcomes, the goal cannot be the thing that makes a difference in their performance. Mm. Um, And this is one of the reasons why I come back to habits so much. What is it that makes the difference if it's not the goal? It's usually the system that they're following. It's the collection of habits that they follow each day. And in fact, if there's if there's a gap between your goal and your system, if there's a gap between your desired outcome and your daily habits, your daily habits will always win, right? Almost by definition, whatever system you've been running for, say, the last six months or year has carried you inevitably to the results that you have right now. And so, you know, if you want to change the the outcome, you need to change the habits you need to change yeah. the system that you're following. Now, that doesn't mean that goals are useless. I think goals have quite a few uh, use cases that are very helpful for. The first one is uh, what we've been talking about, clarity and knowing what you were optimizing for and so on. 
Second one is filtering. It's much easier to filter out opportunities and say no to stuff or say yes to certain things if you know what the goal is. If you know, is this going to be taking me closer to or further from the thing that's important to me? So that's really helpful. So my general approach is ties back to a couple of different things we've talked about today already. First, let me try to envision the ideal outcome. So I, I'd like to use, I like the phrase work backwards from magic. What is the magical outcome going to be? And then can I work backwards from there? But I don't want to fix myself into only one line of thinking or only one path. I want to have multiple pathways to the magical outcome, multiple pathways to a successful result. Because the truth is you don't know what's going to happen. You don't know how things are going to play out. So I heard this framework recently. Uh, it comes from Sean Puri. He's an entrepreneur investor, but he calls it ABZ. So know your ABZs. So A is where you are right now. B is your next step. Z is ultimately where you want to go. So I start at Z. Let me figure out where I want to go. Then you have to be honest about A, where am I right now? What do I actually have? What resources do I have? What skills do I have? What is the truth of the situation? What's reality? And you don't actually don't need to know C through Y. You don't need to know the rest of the steps. All you need to know is what is B going to be? What's my next step going to be? And can I take action right away? And then I can just repeat that again. So now B has become A. This is the current spot. How can I do it one more time? And if you do that all the way and kind of keep revisiting Z and thinking backwards, and is this taking me closer or further away? Um, you can often do some really cool stuff uh, just by trying to follow that. So that's kind of more generally how I think about goal setting. I think it's important to know where I'm heading, but I want the bulk of my attention focused on the system and the habits and uh, just going from A to B. Yeah, that's really, really good, man. Um, yeah, really good. When I think of like my real estate investment, I don't want to, I don't want to spend a lot of time on this example, but my real estate investment company, we buy like apartments and mobile home parks and stuff. Anyway, we had a goal for like in the three year goal, like the Z was to buy $50 million of real estate. But then we, you know, broke that down quarterly. And then more importantly, we set like these habits that, and I never thought about it in terms of habits until you, just today on this call, but that's really what they are. We have these habits that we do all the time. Did we contact this broker? Did we analyze this deal? Did we make this offer? These are the habits that we just like track meticulously and make sure that we're accomplishing them to the point that they're a second nature for my team. And so like, you know, over the course of a year, we ended up buying that $50 million, which was awesome. But then what was crazy is like two weeks ago or three weeks ago now, we got $50 million under contract in a single week. So like my three-year goal just happened in a week. And and when my team, we kind of all sat down going, what just happened? Like, how did this happen? And we realized like it, it was literally just because like, we did that exact A, B, Z kind of thing. We knew where we were going, but then it was always like, okay, what's the, what's the habits? What's the A? What's the B? Okay. Now we move the B to the A and like, it's this continual rhythm. So like you said, we, we focus on the systems and it just, it, it's almost like laughable how like well this thing works. Yet majority of the world just doesn't operate that way. They just operate on why didn't I lose the weight? Why didn't I buy the real estate thing? Why didn't I write the book? What I like about that is uh, this general approach. You, you kind of simultaneously have to hold these competing tensions in your mind, which is don't rush, you know, don't do things thoughtlessly. Don't think, do things carelessly, but also don't wait because waiting, it, it just, all it does is just reduces the amount of life you have left to accomplish these things. So you need to have this bias toward action, but you also need to be thoughtful about the process. It doesn't mean you're, you're, you're not rushing around or doing things carelessly, but you're never waiting longer than you need to. Uh, And so don't rush, but don't wait is, uh, I think ABZ kind of aligns with that too. You know, like you're not rushing because you know what Z is, you know what you're optimizing for, but you're not waiting. You're trying to go from A to B right now. 
That's really good. Yeah, I, I, I think the phrase that's kind of stuck out to me the most from today's interview is just that, what are you optimizing for? I, I love that concept. And uh, I'm glad you brought that up because it's, yeah, what are you working toward and are the habits lined up to get you there? And if people just thought more that way, man, the world would be a different place. So thank you, man. Well, before we get out of here, we got a last segment of the show and that is called our Famous Four. These are the same four questions we ask every week of every guest. So we're going to throw them at you right now. First question actually is very closely related to what you teach. So the question is, what is the current habit or trait you're trying to develop or improve in your own life? I've been working out for a long time, but I have never worked out five days a week. I usually have done anywhere between two and four. And uh, for the last two months, I've been doing five days a week. So um, I uh, have changed the style a little bit and trying to scale that up and just kind of make it more of a more of a daily thing than a, um, you know, every other day thing. Next question. What is your favorite business book? Hmm. There are a lot of good ones out there. I actually have one on my desk right now that I really enjoyed, which is called Positioning. Uh, it's an old school one. It's like 80s or 90s. Um, but uh, it's all about how you position ideas or position products, how you package things. And um, I'm not going to say it's my favorite business book, but I do think it's important. And it's what I'm thinking about right now. And uh, as an example, so Atomic Habits has a section later in the book where I talk about deliberate practice. It could have been a book about deliberate practice where I talk about habits, but instead it was a book about habits where I talk about deliberate practice. And I think the difference in how those two books would have sold is enormous. And it all has to do with how the book is positioned. I decided to position the book, the core topic around habit change and habit formation rather than around deliberate practice. And um, I think that's key because most products that really do well tap into a desire people already have. You know, you don't just by virtue of being part of society and growing up in society, you sort of know already that good habits are important or favorable and bad habits are unfavorable. But if you're not familiar with the term deliberate practice, it takes like 30 seconds to unpack it. And you don't get 30 seconds when people are looking at a book cover. That's too long. It's yep. you've already lost them. So um, anyway, how you position your product, how you position your offerings, I think is really important. So not my favorite business book ever, but uh, one that I think is important. I've been thinking a lot about recently. No, it's phenomenal. I'm such a junkie for like frameworks and how you teach a concept that people are going to be able to grasp onto, how you position it. So I'll pick up a copy of that book. Yeah, it's it's huge. I mean, I literally wrote a book called How to Invest in Real Estate and then one called The Book on Rental Property Investing. Like, because I'm like, this is what people are searching for. This is what they want. And, you know, both of them are in the top, whatever, three of best-selling real estate books because like people like it just it's how you present stuff. It's how you the framework you lay out, which is why I love the atomic habits. You have just such good frameworks. So good job. Next question. Other than blowing Brandon and I's minds during a podcast, what are some of your hobbies? I like weightlifting. Uh, I have a cabin in the woods and I love going ATVing and hiking in the woods and hanging out out there. Pre pandemic, love traveling and have done travel photography in uh, over 40 countries now. And so I kind of like spent the last decade bouncing around and trying to do a lot of that. My two entry points into a culture when I visit someplace are photography. So I try to find like cool places to take a few pictures that kind of encapsulate the the trip and uh, food. So, um, mm, yeah. yeah, I would say those are kind of my main things that I, I find interesting and exciting outside of uh, the work I'm doing. Columbus, Ohio. What's the best food in all of Columbus, Ohio? Like if you had to pick one thing, if I'm going to go there for one dinner, where do I go? Mm. This is not a famous four question, but 
it really depends on what you like, of course. Like, you know, if you if you don't like Indian food, then I'm not gonna send you to an Indian restaurant. But there are yeah, there are a couple different uh ones that I would recommend. Barcelona is a really good one. Uh Spanish place, got great paella. Uh they have like a porch out there you can just sit on while there's nice. It's 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 awesome. Um so I, I think you uh you'd be very happy with your dinner. Though. I love asking food people those questions because I wanted to ask you for a favor, James, if you'd be so kind. We had Jocko Willink on the podcast, and he forced Brandon to commit <clears throat> to doing jujitsu. And Brandon actually then had to do it, which I received the passive benefit of now that he has a personal trainer. I just jumped in with his guy, and now I'm doing it. Can you get Brandon to commit to weightlifting because he hates it, but I think he would be much happier if he would do it? <laughs> no, no. Actually, let me speak to this. Cause I wanted to bring this up earlier. I want to know your like thoughts on this, James. So David said earlier, he's like, David said, when he does jujitsu, it's hard. It's miserable. He's struggles while doing it, but he knows it's good for him long term. So he's in there and he's like, really like, like it's, it's terrible. He's out of breath. When I do jujitsu, I said this to a buddy yesterday. I said, every second is like the best second of my life. When I'm doing it, I'm not. I love every second of it. I'm just in there and I love it. Uh, it feels so light and easy for me. Now, I'm not making fun of David here because the exact opposite is true for, for David and I with weightlifting. I go to a gym. I hate every second of it. I go because I have to because I know I want to get muscly and I show up and I'll do it for a month maybe and then I'll stop again because I just don't love it. So I'm wondering like, I mean, how much like do, do you feel, I don't know if it's a habit question, but like, is that why I'll probably continue with jujitsu for a long time and David won't? Or like, can you muscle your way through something you don't like just because you want the outcome? Look, it's hard to beat the person who's having fun. You know, because mm-hmm. at some point, like everything gets hard and the person who is still having fun doing the hard thing is going to want to do it for longer or more uh, than the person who feels like it's a grind. And I think in a lot of ways, that's one of the um, central quests of living a good life is trying to figure out what is that thing that feels like fun to me, but feels like work to other people. Because if it feels like fun to you, then, you know, you just get to keep doing it and uh, showing up and you often will stick with it long enough to develop better skills, which then means you're winning, so to speak, more in whatever way that that happens to be true for that thing. And usually when you're winning more, you also feel even better about it. So it's kind of this like positive feedback loop. The other thing I'll say about it is I don't really care. You guys should do whatever, whatever is exciting and uh, you know enjoyable for you. I, I think a lot of the time people assume like, oh, this guy writes about habits. He probably is judging me for which habits the, I'm doing. No, I like I don't view it as my job um, to uh, to figure that out. So I'm happy to be helpful and give a toolkit uh, that people can use. And it's like sometimes you need a hammer and here's a strategy that can fit that. And sometimes you need a screwdriver and here's a strategy that can fit that. But um, I'm not here to judge. That's for sure. And so I say uh, choose whatever form of a habit serves you. And um, if you do that and you're having a good time, I'm happy to take that, David Green. My my Jocko angle gained zero traction with <laughs> that had no impact. I was really hoping I could get a little get some hooks in there. Brandon, nobody skinny likes lifting weights, okay? You just gotta do it for a little while. I didn't like it either when I was really skinny all the time. Here's what I'm gonna get so good at jujitsu that you won't you be able are. to get me off of you. And the only way is if you get stronger. get stronger. All right, all right, all right. Last question from me of the day. And then David's got one final one. But what do you think sets apart successful, we'll say entrepreneurs? from those who give up, fail, or never get started? If you could sum up all your advice, what makes somebody successful? Well, entrepreneurship is like this personal growth engine in disguise. You think it's about building a business, but actually you end up facing all of your own flaws and fears and worries and concerns. You're forced into having uncomfortable conversations. You're forced to realize not all of your ideas are good. 
Um, and so you have to be self-aware um, in order to realize like where those holes are and what the gaps are. But more than anything else, I'd say you have to be willing to trust that you'll figure it out. Like it's just, there's always some point on the curve just ahead of you that you don't have the answer to. I mean, it's just the nature of running a business. There things are changing. The business is changing. There is no way that you can have it all mapped out ahead of time. So I think trusting yourself that you will figure it out as you go is probably the single biggest thing because the people who don't start, it's because they don't trust themselves. They feel like they need more information. They feel like they need to have the answers. They need a playbook, whatever. And, um, you can have some of that, but you're never going to have it all. And, um, there are just always going to be things that have to be resolved as they arise. And so I think, um, one way I heard it phrased recently is that some people are problem solvers and some people are problem adders. And so with problem solvers, they look at like, what is awesome about this situation? And then they resolve the problems as they arise with the problem adders. They look at what could go wrong with this situation and they dream up problems before they happen. And if you have that kind of mindset, then you're just, you're always going to be able to come up with reasons for why it's not the right time to start yet. But if instead you try to focus on the awesome bits and then you solve things whenever they are needed, whenever they need to be solved uh, and trust yourself to figure it out along the way, then yeah, you got a shot. Uh, it doesn't guarantee success, but I think you need that mindset. Um, if you're adding on layers of complication and layers of problems to it, it's just going to make it way harder than it needs to be. That's good. All right. Last question of the day, James, where can people find out more about you? So if you enjoyed the conversation, want to learn more about habits, Atomic Habits is probably the best place to start. Uh, and you can find the book at atomichabits.com. And if you just want to see more of my work generally, uh, it's all at jamesclear.com. And um, probably the best way to, to start or get into the uh, work is to join 321, which is my weekly newsletter. Uh, so each issue has three ideas from me, two quotes from other people, and one question to think about during the week. It takes about two or three minutes to read, goes out every Thursday. Um, I think like 1.2 million people subscribe now. So um, wow. anyway, feel free to check it out and uh, I hope you enjoy it. Thanks for listening. By the way, man, three, two, one is another perfect example of like a framework or positioning. Like you have something cool, but people can wrap their head around that and go, I want that. Like I want that right now. I'm going to go sign up for right now. So very cool, man. You're awesome at this. Awesome. Thanks guys. Appreciate the opportunity. Great to talk to you. It was great. Thank you. Thank you, James. This is David Green for Brandon. Do you even lift bro Turner signing off? You're listening to Bigger Pockets Radio, simplifying real estate for investors large and small. If you're here looking to learn about real estate investing without all the hype, you're in the right place. Stay tuned and be sure to join the millions of others who have benefited from BiggerPockets.com, your home for real estate investing online. The market is changing and finding your way can be tricky. Rates shift, headlines whirl, but your goal hasn't changed. You want financial freedom. And the best investors know it's not about timing the market, it's about time in the market. If you're ready to get into the real estate investing game or take your game to the next level, finding an investor-friendly agent is your next step. With BiggerPockets Agent Finder, you can find the right agent in minutes. Just head to biggerpockets.com deals and enter a few details about what and where you want to buy and bam, instantly match with an investor-friendly agent who fits the bill. These local market experts can help you navigate the neighborhoods, analyze the numbers, and take action with confidence once and for all. This free resource is only available at biggerpockets.com deals. Get an agent, get the deal, and get closer to financial freedom at biggerpockets.com deals. That's biggerpockets.com deals to find your investor-friendly agent today. The content of this podcast is for informational purposes only. 
Past performance is not indicative of future results, and all host and participant opinions are their own. Investment in any asset, real estate included, involves risk. Use your best judgment and consult with qualified advisors before investing. Only risk capital you can afford to lose. BiggerPockets LLC disclaims all liability for direct, indirect, consequential, or other damages arising from reliance upon information presented in this podcast.